Chapters thirty one and thirty two of the Pawn's Count by E. Phillips Oppenheim. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss. Chapter thirty one. The offices of Messrs. Neville, Brooks, and Van Tail were the scene of something like pandemonium. Van Tail himself, bathed in perspiration, rushed into his room for the twentieth time. He almost flung the newspaper man who was waiting for him through the door. "'No, we don't know a darn thing,' he declared. "'We've no special information. The only reason we're up to our neck in Anglo-French is because we've two big clients dealing. It's just a few personal notes about those clients we'd like to handle.' "'Oh, get out as quick as you can,' Van Tail snapped. "'This isn't a bucket shop or a pool room. The names of our clients concerns ourselves only.' "'What do you think Anglo-French are going to do, Mr. Van Tail?' "'I can't tell,' was the prompt answer. "'But I can tell what's going to happen if you don't clear out.' The newspaper man took a hurried leave. Van Tail seized the telephone receiver, only to put it down with a little shout of relief as the door opened and Lutchester entered. "'Thank God!' he exclaimed. "'Why, I've been ringing you up for an hour and a half.' "'Sorry,' Lutchester replied. "'I was down at the barber's the first time you got through, and then I had some cables to send off. "'Look here!' Van Tail continued, gripping him by the shoulder. Is six hundred and forty thousand dollars or thereabouts profit enough for you on your Anglo-French? It sounds adequate, Lutchester confessed, laying his hat and cane carefully upon the table and drawing up an easy chair. How much is Mr. Fisher going to lose? God knows. If you allow me to sell at the present moment, you'll ease the market and he'll lose about what you make. And if I decide to hold my Anglo-French, you'll have to provide us with a couple of million dollars, Van Tail replied and I should think you would pretty well break Fisher for a time. Frankly, he's an important client, and we don't want him broken, even temporarily. What do you want me to do, then? Give us authority to sell, Van Tail begged. Can't you hear them yapping about in the office outside? They're round me all the time like a pack of hounds. Honestly, if I don't sell some Anglo-French before lunchtime today, they look like wrecking the office. Lutchester knocked the end of a cigarette thoughtfully, against the side of his chair. All right, he decided. I don't want you to suffer any inconvenience. Besides, I am going to Washington this afternoon. You can keep on selling as long as the market's steady. Directly it sags, hold off. If necessary, even buy a few more. You understand me? Don't sell a single block under today's price. Keep the market at that figure. It's an easy job because next week Anglo-French will go up again." Van Tail was moved to a rare flash of admiration. "'You're a cool hand, Lutchester,' he declared, "'considering you're not a businessman.' "'Fisher's the man who'll need to keep cool,' Lutchester remarked, lighting his cigarette. "'What about a little lunch?' The stockbroker scarcely heard him. He had struck a bell, and the office seemed suddenly filled with clerks. Van Tail's words were incoherent. A string of strange directions— punctuated by slang which was, so far as Lutchester was concerned, unintelligible. The whole place seemed to wake into a clamor of telephone bells, shouts, the clanging and opening of the lift-gates, and the hurried tramp of footsteps in the corridors outside. Lutchester rose to his feet. He was looking very comfortable and matter-of-fact in his gray tweed suit and soft-felt hat. Perhaps, he observed pleasantly, I am out of place here. Drop me a line and let me know how things are going to the Hotel Capitol at Washington. That's all right, Van Tail promised. I'll get you on the long-distance phone. 
I was coming myself with Pamela for a few days, but this little deal of yours has set things buzzing. Say, who's that? The door opened, and Fisher paused upon the threshold. Certainly of all the people concerned, the two speculators themselves seemed the least moved by the excitement they were causing. Fisher was dressed with his usual spick-and-span neatness, and his appearance betrayed no sign of flurry or excitement. He nodded grimly to Lutchester. "'My congratulations,' he said. "'You seem to have rigged the press here to some purpose.' Lutchester raised his eyebrows. "'I don't even know a newspaper man in New York,' he declared. The newcomer gave vent to a little gesture of derision. "'Then you've some very clever friends. You'd better make the most of their offices.' The German version of the naval battle will be confirmed and amplified within twenty-four hours, and then your Anglo-French will touch mud. If that is your idea, Lutchester remarked suavely, why by now? Why not wait till next week? Come, he went on, I will have a little flutter with you, if you like, Fisher. I will bet you five thousand dollars, and Van Tail here shall hold the stakes, that a week hence to-day Anglo-French stand higher than they do at this moment. Fisher hesitated. Then he turned away. "'I am not a sportsman, Mr. Lutchester,' he said. Lutchester brushed away a little dust from his coat-sleeve. "'No,' he murmured, "'I agree with you. Good morning.' Lutchester walked out into the sun-baked street, and with his absence Fisher abandoned his almost unnatural calm. He strode up and down the room, fuming with rage. At every fresh click of the tape-machine, he snatched at the printed slip eagerly and threw it away with a note. No one took any notice of him. Van Tail rushed in and out, telephones clanged, perspiring clerks dashed in with copies of contracts to add to the small pile upon the desk. There came a quiet moment presently. Van Tail wiped the perspiration from his forehead and drank a tumbler full of water. "'Fisher,' he asked, "'what made you go into this so big? You must have known there was always the risk of your wireless report beating it up a little too tall. It wasn't our report at all that I went by, Fisher confessed gloomily. It was the English Admiralty announcement that did it. Can you conceive, he went on striking the table with his fist, any nation at war, with a grain of common sense, or an ounce of self-respect, issuing a statement like that, an apology for a defeat which, damn it all, never happened? Say the thing was a drawn battle, which is about what it really was. It didn't suit the Germans to fight it to a finish. They'd everything to lose and little to gain. So, in effect, they left the Britishers there and passed back behind their own minefield. So far as regards reports, that was victory enough for anyone except those muddle-headed civilians at Whitehall. They deceived the world with that infernal bulletin, and incidentally, me. It was on that statement I gave you my orders, not on ours. It's a damned unfortunate business, Van Tail sighed. You're only halfway out yet, and it's cost you nearly three hundred thousand. A dull spot of purple color burned in Fisher's cheeks. His upper lip was drawn in. His appearance for a moment was repulsive. It isn't the money I mind, he muttered. It's Lutchester. Van Tail was discreetly silent. Fisher seemed to read his thoughts. He leaned across the table. A wonderful fellow, your friend Lutchester, he sneered an admirable crick in the finance and diplomacy and love-making, eh? But the end isn't just yet. I promise you one thing, James Van Tail. He isn't going to marry your sister. I'd a damn sight sooner see she married him than you, Van Tail blazed out. Fisher was taken aback. 
he had held for so long the upper hand with this young man that for the moment he had forgotten that circumstances were changed between them. Van Tail rose to his feet. The bonds of the last few months had snapped. He spoke like a free man. "'Look here, Fisher,' he said. "'You've had me practically in your power for the best part of a year. But now I'm through with you. I'm out of your debt, no thanks to you, and I'm going to keep out. I am working on your business as hard as though you were my own brother, and I'll go on doing it. I'll get you out of this mess as well as I can, and after that you can take your damned business where you please.' "'So that's it, is it?' Fisher scoffed. "'A rich brother-in-law coming along, eh?' "'No, don't do that,' stepping quickly backwards as Van Tail's fist shot out. "'Then keep my sister's name out of this conversation,' Van Tail insisted. "'If you are wise, you'll clear out altogether. They're at it again.' Fisher, however, glanced at the clock and remained. At the next lull he hung down the tape and turned to his companion. "'Say, there's no use quarreling, James,' he declared. I'm going to leave you to it now. Guess I said a little more than I meant to, but I tell you I hate that fellow Lutchester. I hate him just as though I were the typical German and he were the typical Britisher, and there was nothing but a sea of hate between us. Shake hands, Jim. Van Tail obeyed without enthusiasm. Fisher drew a chair to the table and wrote out a check, which he passed across. I'll drop into the bank and let them know about this, he said. You can make up accounts and let me hear how the balance stands. I'll wipe it out by return, whatever it is. Fisher passed out of the offices a few minutes later, followed by many curious eyes, and stepped into his automobile. A young man who had brushed against him pushed a note into his hand. Fisher opened it as his car swung slowly through the traffic. Guards at all Connecticut factories doubled. O'Hagan caught last night in precincts a small arms factory, was taken alive, disobeying orders be careful. Fisher tore the note into small pieces. His face was grimmer than ever as he leaned back amongst the cushions. There were evil things awaiting him outside Wall Street. End of chapter 31 Chapter 32 Lutchester breathed the air of Washington and felt almost homesick. The stateliness of the city, its sedate and quiescent air after the turmoil of New York, impressed him profoundly. Everywhere its diplomatic associations made themselves felt. Congress was in session, and the faces of the men whom he met continually in the hotels and restaurants seemed to him some index of the world power which flung its far-reaching arms from beneath the Capitol dome. One afternoon, a few days after his arrival, he called at the Hastings House, a great colonial mansion within a stone's throw of his own headquarters. The mention of his name, however, seemed to chill all the hospitality out of the smiling face of the southern butler who answered his ring. Miss Van Tail was out, and from the man's manner it was obvious that Miss Van Tail would continue to be out for a very long time. Lutchester retraced his steps to the British Embassy, where he had spent most of the morning, and made his way to the sitting-room of one of the secretaries. The Honorable Philip Downing, who was eagerly waiting for a cable recalling him to take up a promised commission, welcomed him heartily. "'Things are slack here today, old fellow. Let's go out to the country club and have a few sets of tennis or a game of golf, whichever you prefer,' he suggested. "'I've done my little lot till the evening.' "'Show on tonight, isn't there?' Lutchester inquired. "'Just a reception. You going to put in an appearance?' "'I fancy so. Have you got your list of guests handy?' 
The young man dived into a drawer and produced a few typewritten sheets. "'Alphabetical list of acceptances. Here and there a few personal notes,' he pointed out with an air of self-satisfaction. "'I go through this list with the chief while he's changing for dinner.' Lutchester ran his forefinger down the list. "'Senator Theodore and Mrs. Hastings,' he quoted. "'By the by, they have a niece staying with them.' "'Want a card for her?' the Honorable Philip inquired with a grin. "'I should like it sent off this moment,' Lutchester replied. The young man took a square, gilt-edged card from a drawer by his side, filled it out at Lutchester's dictation, rang the bell, and dispatched it by special messenger. "'I've got my little buzzer outside,' he observed. "'We'll make tracks for the club if you're ready.' The two men played several sets of tennis, and afterwards lounged in two wicker chairs, underneath a gigantic plane tree in a corner of the lawn. The place was crowded, and Philip Downing was an excellent showman. Washington, he explained, has never been so divided into opposite camps, and this is almost the only common meeting ground. Everyone has to come here, of course. The German staff play tennis, and the Austrians all go in for polo. Here comes the Dusky. He's most fearfully popular with the ladies here. Does us a lot of harm, they say. He's a great sticker for etiquette. He used to nod and call me Phil. Now you watch. He'll bow from his waist as though he had corsets on. As a matter of fact, he's a good sportsman. Count Zadusky's bow was stiff enough, but his intention was obvious. He stopped before the two men, exchanged a somewhat stilted greeting with Philip Downing, and turned to Lutchester. "'I believe,' he said, "'that I have the honor of addressing Mr. Lutchester.' Lutchester rose to his feet. "'That is my name,' he admitted. "'We have met in Rome, I think, and in Paris,' the Count reminded him. "'If I might beg for the favor of a few moments' conversation with you.' The two men strolled away together. The Count plunged at once into the middle of things. "'It is you, sir, I believe, whom I have to thank for the abrupt departure of Mademoiselle Sonia from New York?' "'Quite true,' Lutchester admitted. "'Under different circumstances,' the Count proceeded, I might regard such interference in my affairs in a different manner. Here, of course, that is impossible. I speak to you out of regard for the lady in question. You appear in some mysterious manner to have discovered the fact that she was in the habit of bringing entirely unimportant and non-political messages from dear friends in France. Mademoiselle Sonia, Lutchester said calmly, had for a brief space of time forgotten herself. She was engaged in carrying out espionage work on your behalf. I believe I may say that she will do so no more. The Count was a man of medium height, thin, with complexion absolutely colorless, and deep-set, tired eyes. At this moment, however, he seemed endowed with the spirit of a new virility. The cane which he grasped might have been a dagger. His smooth tones nursed a threat. Mr. Lutchester, he declared, if harm should come to her through your information, I swear to God that you shall pay. Lutchester's manner was mild and unprovocative. Count, he replied, we make no war upon women. Sonia has repented, and the knowledge which I have of her misdeeds will be shared by no one. She has gone back to her country to work for the Red Cross there. So far as I am concerned, that is the end. The two men walked a few steps further in unbroken silence. Then the Count raised his hat. Mr. Lutchester, he said, Yours is the reply of an honorable enemy. I might have trusted you, but Sonia is half of my life. I offer you my thanks. He strolled away, and Lutchester rejoined his young friend. 
the lion and the lamb seem to have parted safely the latter exclaimed now sit by my side and i will show you interesting things those four irreproachable young men over there in tennis flannels are all from the german embassy the two elder ones behind are austrians all those women's are the wives of senators who sympathize with germany their husbands look like it don't they Today they have an addition to their ranks the thin elderly man there whose clothes were evidently made in london that senator hastings he is a personal friend of the president joe what a beautiful girl with mrs hastings that lutchester told him is the young lady to whom you have just sent a card of invitation for to-night then here's hoping that she comes philip downing observed finishing his glass of mint julep is she a pal of yours yes i know her lutchester admitted let's go and butt in then downing suggested i love breaking up these little gatherings you'll see them all stiffen when we come near i hope they haven't got a hold of hastings though the two men rose to their feet and crossed the lawn fisher who had suddenly appeared in the background whispered something in mrs hastings ear she swung around to pamela a second too late pamela with a word of excuse to the young man to whom she was talking stepped away from the circle and held out her hand to lutchester so you really have come to washington she exclaimed as a rescuer lutchester replied i feel that i have a mission we cannot afford to lose your sympathies may i introduce philip downing pamela shook hands with the young man and took her place between them i've been envying you your seat under the tree she said couldn't we go there for a few moments mrs hastings detached herself and approached them she received philip downing's bow cordially and she was almost civil to lutchester i can't have my niece taken away she protested we are just going in to tea pamela pamela shook her head i am going to sit under that tree with mr lutchester and mr downing she declared tea doesn't attract me in the least and that tree does mrs hastings accepted defeat with a somewhat cynical gracefulness she closed her lorgnette with a little snap you leave us all desolated my dear pamela she said you remind me of what your poor dear father used to say almost anyone could live with pamela if she always had her own way pamela laughed as she strolled across the lawn aren't one's relatives trying she murmured End of chapter thirty two recording by tom weiss tom's audiobooks dot com